in case you didn't know it, I have a news flash for you. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. All over the world, tonight, tomorrow, tomorrow night, romantics will be finding clever ways to express their love to their chosen sweetheart. I asked Norma a couple of weeks ago, I said, Baby, what do you want for Valentine's Day? She said, Nothing. I'll let you know next week how that worked out for me. For some, it's going to be chocolates. For some, roses. For some, it'll be cards and various other expressions of undying love. Thank goodness for Hallmark. They can write some of the most beautiful, most tender sentiments you ever read on their cards. In fact, just a few weeks ago, Norm and I were in the Hallmark store in Nacogdoches. I was looking at cards and I found a Valentine card that had the most loving, tender, beautiful sentiment you've ever read on a Valentine card. I called Norma over and I showed it to her. I said, if I was going to spend the money to get you a card, this would be the one I'd get you. She seemed to appreciate it. She said, thanks a lot. You know, it's nice when people appreciate the little things that you do for them, isn't it? Valentine's Day. Great love. But you know something? Great love is often accompanied by great tragedy. Because oftentimes the deep love we express wanes and grows cold. It brings tears to our eyes when we see those that no longer love one another as they one time did. And yet, there's something that's infinitely sadder than watching the love between two sweethearts grow cold. One of the saddest things you can ever witness is seeing a church that's grown cold. That's pictured for us in Revelation chapter 2, the first seven verses. The letter to the church at Ephesus. And under the angel of the church of the Ephesians write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them, which say they're apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit saith to the churches. Imagine that. A congregation with a vital commitment to Christ. Growing cold, stagnant, and indifferent. Perhaps it remains doctrinally orthodox, evangelically active, and socially responsible. But its orthodoxy is no longer maintained out of a deep love for the Lord. That's what had happened at Ephesus. That great church had allowed their flame to grow cold. And here in this letter, the Lord confronts them. At the time this letter was written, Ephesus was a great and thriving city. It was a cosmopolitan city, a city of rich and poor, cultured and ignorant artisans and merchants. In Ephesus was the famous temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Much of this wealth of Ephesus came from the manufacture and sale of images of this goddess Diana. In Ephesus of the first century, paganism was strong, seasoned, and respectable. It was into this idolatrous city of Ephesus the heralds of the gospel came to preach. Among those who came to preach at Ephesus was eloquent, gifted, but imperfectly taught Apollos. Timid Timothy also had preached there, and so had John, the beloved apostle. But the church at Ephesus owed the most to Paul, the most able preacher, the preacher with the hottest heart of any of them all. Paul had preached in Ephesus for three years. Under the leadership of Paul, the church had become an institution of power in the city. It had become a power in the surrounding country. It was the elders of the church at Ephesus Paul had called to him at Miletus in Acts chapter 20. And when he called those elders at Ephesus to him, he warned them to beware of wolves that would threaten the flock. To beware of false teachers. Now since the time Paul warned them of that, that Luke records for us in the book of Acts, and this letter is written in Revelation chapter 2, nearly a quarter of a century of time has elapsed. And John, from his prison of exile on the island of Patmos, speaking by the inspiration of the risen Lord, Pens this letter. In verse 4, it says, But I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Philip's translation puts it this way, But I hold this against you, that you do not love as you did at first. My favorite translation of verse 4, this is going to shock you, comes from the pen of Dr. Moffat and his translation. 
Dr. Moffat translates it, But I have this against you. You have given up loving one another as you did at first. John is speaking on behalf of Jesus. And John knows the good works of this church at Ephesus. He knows the difference that this church has made in the city. No doubt the church has changed a great many hearts in the people of Ephesus. The church there has made a great difference in the homes and relationships of Ephesus. It's a church that no doubt has been very instrumental in remaking broken and shattered lives. I can imagine that that great Ephesian church has changed despair into hope and hate into love in a great many hearts. The church has so successfully brought the living Christ to the city that many of the people of Ephesus have thrown away their images of Diana and others, and they're refusing to buy the images. The church has been instrumental in sweeping away idolatry. The presence of the church in the city of Ephesus was making a difference in people's lives. Jesus can say that today about every living church. I know thy works. The church whose presence in the community makes that community a better place to live is a great church. But the church whose presence in a community fails to make that community a better place to live is a dead church. Jesus can say that. He can say, I know thy works. He can say that of churches. He can say that of us as individuals. He said, Tim, I know your works. Like that old movie, I saw what you did and I know who you are. God sees what I do. God sees what you do. God knows our works. And He says that. Have you ever thought about that? Have we ever really pondered on what it means That God can say to us as individuals, I know your works. What is there of good in the church? What is there of good in the community? What is there of good in the lives of other people that could not or would not be there except for my presence? Or your presence. If there's nothing. If we cannot say that there's anything good in the church, the community, or the lives of others that we are responsible for. Then something's sorely lacking in our living of the Christian life. Every living church. Every living Christian is accomplishing something and making a difference in the lives of others. And not only that, every living church has to its 
credit some positive good. But it also accomplishes other things that are often seen by no one but God. A great living church accomplishes worthwhile tasks. It also makes a lot of evils impossible in a community. And sometimes that kind of achievement goes unnoticed. As Christians, you and I are called to be the seasoning power of the world. As Christians, we are called to be the leavening influence on the world. As Christians, we are called to be the light of the world. We remake broken lives. But at the same time, with our influence, with being the light of the world and the salt of the earth, we can keep lives from being broken. John is speaking for the Lord, and John says to Ephesus, I know thy works. What else he says? I know thy labor. I know thy toil. I know the effort, the sacrifice, the struggles that have been necessary for you there in Ephesus. That great church did not dream its way to its achievements. Its great accomplishments were at the price of strenuous and sacrificial effort. Saints that were able to bless because they had been willing to bleed. Nothing great, nothing worthwhile has ever been accomplished without hard work. When there's an abundant harvest, it's because of someone's labor. The only place that we sometimes don't understand that is in the church. Sometimes we feel like the church ought to make great strides and great progress without personal effort. Can the Lord say that about me today, about us? That He knows our labor? That He knows our toil? That He knows our hard work? Or do we sometimes take membership in the body of Christ a bit too lightly? Do we look at it too much sometimes in our 21st century like we would look at membership in our lodge or a service club or something of that nature? Have we sanitized the cross and made palatable the story of the cross so much so that we can't really see what the church cost the Lord? Paul talks about it as being the body that he purchased with his blood shed on the cross. Here's the question. Do we? Do we take Jesus Christ seriously? That would make a good sermon, wouldn't it? Maybe we did that last Sunday. Do we really take Jesus seriously in the 21st century? Is Jesus real to us? Is His death real to us? Do we really, deep down inside, down in our heart of hearts, do we really understand what Jesus did as He hung there and bled out on the cross 
on Calvary's hill. Over the years, I have felt that one of the greatest failings I had personally as a preacher was that I was not able to make Jesus Christ as real to people as I wanted to make Him. I have often wished that I had the ability to make Jesus real more than I have. I would wish that I could cause groups of people that I was speaking to to see the pain that Jesus endured. To feel the stripes on His back. To feel the nails through His hands and the spike through His feet. To feel the agony as His bloody back pushed up and down on that rough-hewn cross and the splinters of wood would fill the wounds on His back. I've wished that I could make people feel the nail scars in His hands and see the piercing of His side where His blood flowed down from that cross. I've wished so many times I could really make Jesus real. And maybe, just maybe, if Jesus Christ was more real to us, He would actually know our labor. We're told about this church that He knows their zeal for the truth. He knows their sincere and intelligent orthodoxy. They've tried those who say they're apostles and found them to be false. This church at Ephesus has been instructed by some of the greatest teachers and preachers the first century church had. And if they found someone not preaching sound doctrine, they rejected his teaching. And that was wise on their part. They were commended because they rejected evil men. They were keeping the church pure. They wouldn't have fellowship with open and flagrant sinners. It was a great church to be sure. I think if the Lord wrote a letter like that to the church at center, I'd probably just bust my buttons with pride. It was a church that was accomplishing something. It was a church that was doing its best to be Christian in doctrine and in life. But there was something wrong. There was one thing wrong. Something terribly wrong. They've left their first love, the letter says. Weymouth translates it, You no longer love me as you did at first. But I still like Moffat. You have given up loving one another as you did at first. This church at Ephesus was active. It was sincere. It was genuine. It was decent. It was respectable. It was orthodox. They were doing things by the numbers. They were checking off all the right boxes. But they were failing in their love for the Lord. And in failing in their love for the Lord, guess what? They also were failing in their love for each other. It was a church whose love was growing cold. And that's one of the most tragic things you'll ever find. First love, that's the love of the spousal. First love is the love of honeymoon days. First love is the love that 
prompts the guy to go to the Hallmark store and buy five cards exactly alike that says to the only woman I've ever loved. That's first love. First love. It's the love of honeymoon days. But it's often tragic, isn't it? How soon that honeymoon is over for some couples. And the radiance and the romance fade into the dull and the drab and the commonplace. And the radiance and the romance become rent to pay and groceries to buy and electricity to keep on. Here's the thing. If a couple has been married as long as 20 years and they don't love each other more than they did in the honeymoon days, the chances are they love each other far less than they did then. And that's a great tragedy. But you knew there was a but coming, didn't you? There's a tragedy far, far greater than that. If you do not love Jesus Christ more today than when you first met Jesus, then you're on your way to not loving Jesus at all. Did you catch that? If you don't love Jesus Christ more today, then you love Jesus Christ when you first met Him. Then you're on your way to not loving Him at all. It's like the song in our book. The one I catch a lot of grief for leading so often on Wednesday nights. The longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. The more that I love Him, more love He bestows. Each day is like heaven, my heart overflows. The longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. I think it's 979, but I'm not going to sing it today. You see, here's the thing. In spite of everything that was good in this living, active church at Ephesus, there was this pathetic fact that the springtime of their love was changing to winter. The loss of love is a great tragedy of this Ephesian church. To be sure, it's a great tragedy of any church. A church without love is a church that's unattractive. The most attractive thing any church can have And the most attractive thing that any individual can have is love. A love for one another. A love for the lost souls of men. And a love for the Lord. The church at Ephesus had become cold. But there's hope for them. And it's because of that hope that this letter is written. They have to remember where they came from. They have to remember how much they loved the Lord at first and how much they loved each other at first. 
write this down. It's on the final exam. To cease to love is always to fail. Jesus comes here in this letter to call to their mind the great yesterdays. The great yesterdays of their hearts when their hearts were warm. And so He says to them, He says, remember. He says, remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember what it was like when you loved at first. Remember. He's appealing to them by the memories of the best they've ever known. Remember, he says. Remember that great moment when you first met Jesus. Remember that thrill when you first put Him on in baptism and He cleansed you and washed your sins away. Remember the thrill you used to get to sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We sing that song a lot, don't we? Have you ever taken that song, looked at the words, and thought about it, how personal it is? To sing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Not Leon's, he's not Jane's, he's mine. And that's blessed assurance for me, Jesus belongs to me. Remember that. And remember how excited you used to be to tell someone about Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying to this church, remember all of those things and repent and love again. You see, that's the whole purpose of remembering sometimes is to bring us to repentance. When that young Jewish boy was in the far country slopping the hogs, it was his memory of the Father's house that led him to come back home and Say, Father, I've sinned. Here's the question before the house this morning. Do you love the Lord? If you've never become a Christian, do you love the Lord enough to turn your life over, to turn your life around, to change things and become a Christian? And if you've done that, and you haven't lived God's kind of life, Do you love Him enough to come back home and start over? Do you love Jesus Christ enough to let Him be Lord and Master of your life? The lesson is done. The decisions are yours. The invitation is that of the Lord as we stand.